Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. We open God's word. We ask God himself to open our hearts. So let's pray again. Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. Living God, we are weak, but you are strong. We're like Joshua's trumpets at Jericho. We're like Gideon's lanterns at Midian. We're like David's little stones in the valley of Elah. We are weak, but in our very weakness, we invite you to display the glory of your power and strength. So now in this moment, we look to you. We are powerless. You are all-powerful. The word of man is fleeting and vain, but the word of our God is living and omnipotent. So now we attempt great things in the conscious awareness of our inability to do anything. We depend wholly upon you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our theme this morning in Isaiah chapter 58, our theme this morning in Isaiah chapter 58 is a good one. It's a good one because it's a theme that I think will catch your emotional register. It's something that you should feel strongly about. It's actually something that maybe would make you mad. And the neat thing about it is sometimes in the Bible we find things that, so to speak, make God mad. They make God angry. And if the kinds of things that make God angry also make us angry, maybe that's a sign that we're getting to know God and becoming like him. The theme in Isaiah 58 is, I'm using human language to describe God and it doesn't fit exactly, but the theme in Isaiah 58, so to speak, is something that exasperates God. When's the last time that you were exasperated? Which means you were mad and disappointed and you were just like, oh, I hate it when she does that. This doesn't fit exactly to God. He's on a different tr transcendent plane than we are. But this theme in Isaiah 58 does make God angry. The theme is one that makes me angry and exasperates me. The theme is phony Christians. The theme is hypocrisy. The theme is people who say that they're Christian, but everything else they say doesn't sound like Christ and actually harms the cause of the church. They say that they're Christian, but they decidedly do unchristlike, ungodly things without remorse and without repentance. Isaiah 58 is about God's people who have a name that they're God's people, but they really aren't God's people. And Isaiah 58 picks up a theme that began in Isaiah chapter one. I'd ask you to look at Isaiah chapter one just to refresh this theme, and then we'll jump into Isaiah 58. Isaiah chapter one begins, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And here in Isaiah 1, look at verse 11. This is how God speaks to his hypocritical people. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's as if we sing our songs here, we bring an offering here, and God himself says, I didn't ask you to do that, not people like you. I'm sick of the way you do that. He says he's weary of seeing people behave in such a way. And you see his invitation in verse 16, wash yourselves Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. This theme of hypocrisy, of pretending to be a godly person but doing ungodly things and saying ungodly things is a theme that began in Isaiah 1. He's brought it up several times and now he brings it up again here in our text today in chapter 58. The theme of going through the motions versus the reality of having a relationship with God. The theme of phony external rituals versus genuine faith that's bubbling out of a genuine relationship, a real relationship with God. And God's people use religious rituals as a magic wand, but there's no real repentance in their lives. Maybe you take a quick look on the outside and they seem to fit as God's people, but as soon as you really listen to them and as soon as you really watch the way they spend their money, the way they treat people, it's obvious they're ungodly. Have you ever known anybody in the church like that? In addition to hypocrites in the church, there are also, what would we call them, deserters from the church. They're with us for a while and then they leave. Now, I've known lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who were members of this church for a while, but then they left this church and to go and become a member of another church that has similar doctrine and similar biblical solid ministry as this church. That's not what I'm talking about. You're allowed to leave this church and join another church that's solidly biblical. 
What I'm talking about is people who have left this church and they've left the church. They don't worship on Sundays anymore. They don't honor Jesus for rising again from the grave by singing his praises and and uniting with his saints as we are commanded to do. They left the church in the sense that they bailed out and they never came back. Now, why do people do that? I suppose every person who does that has their own story. And I want you to think about this. Everybody who has bailed out on the church, the way I read scripture, they deserve, they deserve to have somebody who loves them and knows them chase after them and talk to them about it. Jesus said, leave the 99 and go after the one. Everybody who leaves, if they were a part of the community, they deserve to have somebody who knows them go after them and say, why, what's going on? And everybody deserves individual care and counsel. At the same time, having been in this role as long as I have for the number of years that I have, though every individual story is different, it is also the case that I see a lot of common themes in all of those individual stories. And one of the most common is this. Somebody comes to the church, they make an external confession of coming to Christ, and then they have a hard time, and they have a need. They have a need. And they say, God, would you do something about this need? Deliver me from this difficulty. Take care of this cancer. Fix my marriage. Save my prodigal child. Heal this loved one. Untangle this knot that's ruining my life. And God doesn't. He doesn't. And they give up on the God who didn't do what they beckoned him to do. It's common. It's common. And here in Isaiah 58, that's what God's people are doing. They gather together to do whatever sacrifices or songs they're supposed to do, and they're just doing that to get God to do for them what they wanted God to do for them. But God will not be used. God will not be used. God will not be a means to your end. He's God. And yet, isn't it the case that oftentimes, without even thinking about it, we treat God like a divine vending machine? I put something in the offering. I went to church eight weeks in a row. I stopped cussing, whatever it is. So God, you know, why, why didn't you fix this yet? So look with me at Isaiah 58 and consider these things together. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. Oh, they delight to draw near to God. This is the voice of the people, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? 
This is God speaking again. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? We can stop the reading there. You see, God's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic because he's exasperated and fed up, so to speak. When he says in verse two, oh yeah, you're seeking me daily. Oh sure, you delight to know me. And then he says, as if. <laughs> That's not really the case. And you see in verse three how quick they were to blame God. They played that vending machine game of using God. And after they fasted, as they're so quick in verse three to say, hey, God, we fasted, but you didn't do what we asked you to do. They're so quick to lay the blame at God's door. The problem is they were fasting for a God, little G, who would do what they told him to do. And that's not God, big G. This is always the essence of false religion, isn't it? A quid pro quo. It's a business deal. I keep these rules, and then God does this for me. That's every religion that's ever been invented by men. They say, we've done our part, God. Why didn't you do your part? And God answers and says, well, you didn't even really fast. He says in the second half of verse three, even on the day you were fasting, you were really just seeking your own pleasure. You weren't denying yourself. You were just seeking what yourself wanted. And you were oppressing people. You're hitting them. Fasting like that's not real fasting, he says. Just quarreling and strife, just selfishness. Isn't Isaiah saying, you ought not worship a righteous God if you're just giving yourself to unrighteousness? You can say you're worshiping the righteous God when you're giving yourself to unrighteousness, but you're not really worshiping him. Because if you worship the righteous God in truth, you'll line yourself up with his righteousness. If you say you're worshiping a righteous God, but you oppress people, you rip people off, you violently abuse people, then you're not worshiping God. The prophets all emphasize this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all emphasize this. The prophets are so helpful here for a couple of reasons. One, admit it, we can find the prophets emotionally satisfying because we get exasperated and mad when we see hypocrites. And so there, it, it matches our emotional register and it's good to find things in the scripture that show you the way that you ought to feel. So it's satisfying and helpful in that sense 
if we admit it, sometimes the inflammatory, condemnatory language of the prophets, we're like, yeah, throw some more heat on there. But it's not just that. It's not just that. The prophets are also teachers because they don't just condemn what's wrong. They show us the right way to go. That's what the scripture does. It rebukes us and it corrects us and trains us up in the way of righteousness. And that's what Isaiah does here. He doesn't just condemn and rebuke. He gives us instruction in the right way to fast. And God himself says, this is the kind of fasting that I want to see. He says in verse 5, that's not the fasting that I chose. But then he says in verse 6, this is the kind of fasting that I want to see. To do these kinds of things. He says, loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the hungry. And when you see someone who has a need, don't pretend you don't see it, but become generous like God. God wants fasting accompanied with genuine repentance. God wants fasting where you turn away from the quarreling and strife and you actually make peace with other people. God wants fasting where you actually begin to become less greedy and more generous. You can't read this for very long and get away with the fact that a little bit of religion sprinkled here and there is what it's about. No, it's about a lifestyle. It's about an attitude that permeates into the life. The kind of fasting that pleases God is fasting that's generous and that cares for the needs of others. Why would, it's a simple question, but it's profound if you get the answer to it. Why would God want people to be generous and care for others? Why would God want people to be generous and care for others? The reason why is because God made every man and woman in his image and that's what God does. God shows generosity and God cares for others. And we, we demonstrate the reality of that when we do the kinds of things that God does. And the, the marvelous paradox of the Christian life, church, you, this is one of the reasons why you got to come to church every Sunday because you know, you know what I'm about to say, but you forget it. The marvelous paradox of the Christian life is that blessing comes through sacrificial self-denial. The marvelous paradox of the Christian life is that blessing comes through self-denial. The marvelous paradox of the Christian life that you already know but you forget every week is that it is more blessed to what the what? It is more blessed to give than to receive. But six days out of the week, we start to think, receive, receive, receive. I even want to receive from God. I just want God to do the things I'm asking him to do. Well, it's more blessed to give than receive. And Jesus said, you will gain your life if you lose it. And if you seek to gain your life, you'll lose it. Don't you see that in what Isaiah says here? Share your bread. Let the, let, the, let the poor have what you have that they need. 
Move from an attitude of entitlement to an attitude of service. Move from an attitude of entitlement to an attitude of service. And they had an attitude of entitlement not only with the workers and the, and the social economy of the time, but they had an attitude of entitlement toward God. They were like, well, I fasted, you know, t- t- twice, God. I, I mean, maybe I cheated and had a few M&Ms, but I kind of fasted. Why didn't you do what I asked you to do? They have this attitude of entitlement toward God. And so they have this attitude of entitlement toward the people around them that they strike with violence. What would it mean for you to change from a continual attitude of how can I get more and pile it up for myself to have an attitude of how can I give more and spread my possessions, my affections, my attentions around to others who are needy? This is the internal difference that makes all the difference. This is the way of Jesus. This is what he did for us. Church, never forget that we serve a God whose nature is to give himself away to those who can never repay him. We serve a God whose nature is to give himself away to those who can never repay him. So if we're going to be people of God, we better start giving ourselves away to people who can never repay us. That's true fasting. That's true worship. And don't you know, we have many opportunities to do that. Last month, we collected money for the uh, earthquake relief in Turkey. We have uh, sunrise orphans, the the kids in Kenya. We have opportunity through the pausings to care for uh, under-resourced children in Honduras. We can support uh, Alliance Family Services here in town to, to those um, who are in a crisis pregnancy. So opportunities to give through our local and, and international missions programs, but on a more personal level, you have opportunities to share on your street, in your workplace, in your family. This is what God wants. Do these verses remind you of James chapter one? They do for me. James chapter one, verses 22 through 27. Remember what he says? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he describes what it would be to do the word. And it's interesting what he says. It's not what you think. He says in James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and he forgot what he looked like. And then he describes what it means to do the word. And James 1, 26 says this, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 1, sounds a lot like Isaiah 58, does James. James says, this is true Christianity. It's measured in two things, he says immediately. The way you talk and the way you spend money. Don't miss that just because it's pedestrian. This is true Christianity. It's shown in the way you talk and the way you spend money. So I am, I am asking you with no evasion and no dodging and no apology on my part. Does the way that you talk, 
give evidence of the reality that God is changing you. And if you say you're a Christian, does the way you spend money, I mean you, the way you spend money, has that differed, changed, now that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? Or is the way you spend money exactly the same as before you knew Jesus? These are tests. These are the realities that God wants to see. Isaiah 58 reminds me of 1 John. We're headed toward 1 John in our ABFs. You don't want to miss that study of 1 John when we begin it in a couple of weeks in our ABFs. But doesn't John say over and over, love that is merely a word isn't love? He says in 1 John 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. First John three seventeen. if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. First John doesn't say, you have to love other people to get God to love you. That's back to the vending machine. That's back to the attitude of entitlement. That's back to religious hypocrisy. First John doesn't say, you have to love other people to get God to love you. What First John says is that if you know God's love in the gospel, God's love is so real. God's love is so vivid in your life that now you will love others the way that God has loved you. That's what it's saying. Isaiah says, the fast that I choose is the fast that shows genuine love and generosity toward others. We'll read verses 8 through 14, but just before I do, a, a small planned aside. This isn't a an unthought of rabbit trail. I've planned a tiny rabbit trail that's from the text and it's worth doing. I want to talk for a minute about fasting because we don't talk about fasting a lot. So a related tangent that, that isn't directly from this text, but about fasting. Uh, three quick things about fasting and these, I'm just going to share with you three, three ways that fasting has worked in my life. I I don't get up here to talk about my life, but my life is actually the only life that I've lived. So if I'm going to talk about real life, it's probably going to be something from my life. These are three ways that fasting has worked in my life. So fasting in the Old Testament, I think there's really only one place where fasting is commanded in the Old Testament, and that's on the Day of Atonement. But fasting is mentioned dozens of times in the Old Testament, not as a command, but fasting is mentioned as something that God's people do. And fasting is mentioned in situations and circumstances of a, of a devastating event that would cause people to fast. So the first thing I would say about fasting is this. Fasting strengthens prayer. That's what it does in my life. Fasting strengthens prayer. In other words, in the Old Testament, when there's something that they really are going to pray about, they add fasting to their prayer. 
in the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, in, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, when the church leaders have to make a really important decision, they fast before they make that decision. Why? Because fasting strengthens prayer. Fasting strengthens prayer. In my life, when I have something that's really burdening me or something really important, sometimes I'll add fasting to my prayer. Not to earn a better answer from God. God's not a vending machine. I don't want to miss him that way. But I often add fasting or I sometimes add fasting to my prayer because this particular prayer is, I want it so much that I want my body to match my soul. I want my stomach and my gut to match my spirit and my heart. And, and, and I want to see this thing. And, and when I fast, it, it just matches up body, soul, and spirit somehow that when I lift this need up to God, I'm like, I, I'm, like I, I want, I'm so hungry for this that I'm not even hungry for normal food right now. So first thing to say about fasting just in general is that fasting strengthens prayer. The second thing, and this is, this is most in tune with how Isaiah speaks about it here. The second thing to say is that fasting redirects money and attention. Fasting redirects money and attention. And this is in line with what he says here. When you fast, give to the poor. Fasting has a tendency to redirect our money and our attention. Sometimes fasting can be like a jumpstart toward a new level of sacrifice in your life. Have you ever tried this? I know many of you have because we've talked about it. Fast, maybe from food, but what if you fasted from some kind of discretionary spending? I don't know what kind of discretionary spending I'm talking about. A nail salon, a gym membership, a streaming service, Netflix or whatever. Maybe it has to do with food. Like you have a habit of spending $40 at least a week eating out. And you know you can get the same stuff at the grocery store for like $4, like a tenth of the price. So maybe you, you suspend that activity of discretionary spending. And then you take that money that you would have spent on that, and then you double it or add something to it, and you give that money in an intentional way and in a prayerful way to a person that you know that needs it or through our ministries, you know, Honduras or Turkey or whatever. Watch what happens. Not only does fasting strengthen prayer, but fasting is a way to redirect money and attention. And it's amazing what happens when godly people redirect their money and attention. And then the third thing to say about fasting is simply that fasting awakens awareness. Fasting awakens awareness. There's a way that in my life, fasting has from time to time gotten me out of a rut. It's just sort of given me a mini revival that I needed. When I've sensed that I'm drifting or something's wrong, sometimes I just say, I'm, I'm just gonna fast until sundown. I'm gonna skip breakfast and I'm gonna skip lunch because I've been too comfortable and I've just been drifting. And if I fast today, at least, at least this will happen. Every time I get hungry, every time I get hungry, it'll be a little revival, a little jumpstart to say, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be hungry for the right things. I'm supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So fasting can awaken awareness. From that little plan to side on fasting, we'll read through the end of the chapter and make a couple more comments. 
So we stopped our reading in verse 7. And Isaiah says, if you fast genuinely and you really repent, this is what will happen. You see verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire even in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And look at this. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How wonderful. He mentions the Sabbath in verses 13 and 14. That's not a, that's not a, a left turn out of nowhere. The first half of the chapter, it was greed and exploitation. Well, the abuse of the old covenant Sabbath law or rule, they would abuse the Sabbath for their purposes of greed and exploitation. They wouldn't even give day laborers their God-ordained day off. And so it's all of a piece with that greed and exploitation. But the best news of the second half of this chapter don't, don't sleep on this just because it sounds obvious. The best news in the second half of this chapter is that unanswered prayers can become answered prayers. Best news in the back half of this chapter is that those who were properly under the spurning, disciplining hand of God can now be the recipients of God's lifting up and God's favor. Because unlike phony religion and unlike false gods, the true God really does see and he really does hear and he really does reward those who seek him. He answers prayer. He smiles on obedience. We know he doesn't promise that every time you put a penny in the slot, what you want will drop out. It doesn't work like that. But it is the case that he rewards those who seek him. He always does. He always does. Unanswered prayers can be turned into answered prayers or unanswered prayers can stay unanswered. It's your choice. Does this remind you? It should remind you, especially if you're a married man, of 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, 
live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you catch that? First Peter 3, 7. Live with your wives in a godly way, in a gentle way, in an understanding way. And then the Holy Spirit says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Your prayers can be hindered. Your unanswered prayers can remain unanswered prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7, along with Isaiah 58, talks about blockage in the arteries of your prayer life. Some of you men are concerned about blockage in the arteries of your heart because too many double bacon burgers, too many three scoop Sundays, and you're worried about blockage in the arteries of your heart. Some of you men are in no way concerned about blockage in your prayer life. And I don't know a lot of things, but I know this. Blockage in your prayer life is a million times more important than blockage in your arteries. I'll go to the mat for that. A million times more important. And you don't think about it at all. Brothers, this ought not to be the case. We don't reflect on this nearly enough that God promises to refrain from answering prayer. And the same God promises that you can turn unanswered prayers into answered prayers if you repent. Just repent. Just repent. You're not going to become perfect the next day. You'll still sin. But if you are a repentant sinner, this is the prayer that God loves to hear. You see the promise in verse 11? And the Lord will guide you continually. You want God's guidance? The Lord will guide you. Women, you want God's guidance? The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire even in scorched places. And he'll make your bones strong. Osteoporosis here in the Bible. Prevention plan. You don't have to take that little calcium chew that's all chalky. Not exactly. But you, you understand, don't you, that when God made the man and the woman, he didn't like give them a spirit that he like cares a lot about and then pulled a body out of the trash because he doesn't care about that. God designed and intertwined the body and the spirit. And there are dozens of ways that we know about through medicine, neuroscience, whatever, where your spirit influences and impacts the health of your body. And there are dozens and dozens of ways that we haven't figured out yet that that happens. But the Hebrew scriptures attest to that here and and dozens of other places. Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Psalm 32 says that. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. Here, he says, if there's genuine repentance, it'll make your bones strong. And I believe that it will in some way under God's sovereign hand. But the best news of this chapter is that unanswered prayers can become answered prayers. What has decayed can be revived. What has been broken down 
can be restored. See verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and the Lord God himself will say, here I am. Verse 11, the Lord himself will guide you. The Lord himself will take delight in you. And verse 14 says, he will take such delight in you that he'll lift you up. What has been decayed can be revived and what has been damaged can be restored. And the way is true repentance. The way is true repentance. Remember, church, salvation and obedience, they go together. I j just this weekend, I had the privilege of having a long conversation with somebody who's completely out of an Orthodox or Catholic background, and I was able to really explain the difference between working to get God to save you and receiving salvation as the free gift of God, and that's the reality from which you work and you obey as a true child of God. We don't work for God's acceptance. Isaiah 53, God accepts us through the work of the suffering servant, our transgressions on his back. All we did was like sheep went astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We didn't earn that. That's unmerited grace. This is how it works, salvation by grace through faith, and that salvation rooted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ always grows fruit. And that's what we're talking about here. We don't work for God's acceptance, but because we have received acceptance through the atoning work of the suffering servant, now we work out of that acceptance in lives of repentance and obedience. So church, I tell you again, unanswered prayers can become answered prayers. What has decayed can be restored. What has been blocked can be clean and unblocked all in the pathway of true repentance, the repentant fasting that God prizes and that God himself promises to bless. Let's pray. We bow for prayer. I just give you a moment to pray and to say, Lord, to say, Lord, I hear what you are saying to me. Lord, I hear what you are saying to me. And Lord, I don't just want to be a hearer. Lord, I want to be a doer. So help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Heavenly Father, to really receive and walk in what you've said to me just now. Lord, I hear what you have said to me. I receive it in order to walk in it. Bless your church, Lord Jesus, that she might walk in the way that you call her to walk. For your glory, we ask this. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.